Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Your hobby should never be your job. Firstly, your job is your job. A hobby is something that you do, which you only have pleasure from and you do it for fun. And that's the only reason it's yours. And in my head, it's self-contained there. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Balancing Acts. In this conversation, I talk to comedian Tom Horton. Hi, this is Steve Whiteley, comedian, actor, filmmaker and writer, all-round ADHD creative. And welcome to my new podcast, Balancing Acts, where I talk to an array of creatives ranging from comedians, actors, directors, all sorts. And we talk about how they find a sense of balance or not between their creative lives and their everyday lives and how that has an impact on their mental health and beyond. Balancing Acts is made in association with the Comedy Crowd who support independent comedy creators. They showcase the best new videos on ComedyCrowdTV.com and across media platforms. They support independent comedy creators and showcase the best new videos including adult animation, sketch shows, web series, viral hits and lots more. So if you're a creator, then do check them out. Thomas shared lineups with the likes of Michael McIntyre, John Bishop, Jason Manford, Jack Whitehall, and he supported Daniel Sloss, Justin Morehouse, and more recently, Milton Jones on tour. Tom has performed three Edinburgh Fringe shows and had a sold-out run at London Soho Theatre. Prior to his stand-up career, Tom performed in The Noise Next Door, the very successful improv ensemble, and he's appeared on the likes of BBC One, ITV, Channel 4, The Jim Jeffries Show, Comedy Central, and The Roast Battle alongside fellow comic Lauren Patterson. This was a great conversation we covered loads of ground we kick off talking about tom's workout regime during lockdown i was very curious as to how he got so hench he posted uh, an instagram post during lockdown and he was buff so we talk about that and how lockdown affected his stand-up career what it was like supporting milton jones on tour he breaks down his several year comedy career plan and describes the transition of leaving his improv group you know and the whole experience of performing as part of an ensemble to then becoming a solo stand-up comedian. 
Tom explains the benefits of performing improv for 10 years and how that had a positive impact on him as a stand-up comedian. He talks about the pros and cons to touring solo and how that led to panic-induced attacks. We then discuss the strategies Tom used to get himself into a healthier place, both mentally and emotionally. He emphasises the importance of having hobbies where there is no outcome or end goal. You're just doing them purely for the sake of, of the hobby, the passion of the hobby. There's a little... Neat saying for you, the passion of the hobby. Put that on a on a t-shirt or become a it's gonna become some sort of TV series. Welcome to the passion of the hobby. Anyway, Tom also breaks down how he learned to value life experiences over just purely focusing on his career. He talks about what it was like living in the Tower of London and his relationship with his dad who comes from military background and what his thoughts were on Tom pursuing his comedy career. There is loads here, lots of nuggets of gold. If you are a comedian or aspiring comedian, then this is the episode for you. Remember, if you like this episode or if you like balancing acts in general and you haven't done already, please do rate and review the podcast series on Apple. Uh, Subscribe, share it with your friends, all that jazz. It really does help get it out there. Also, just to say there's a couple of Wi-Fi connection issues in this conversation, but they are few and far between and it doesn't affect the conversation, the free-flowing nature of the conversation, which is all down to to Tom and has nothing to do with me. Um, But yes, I'd like to thank Tom for his patience bearing with me during the connection mishaps. So, without further ado, over to Tom Horton. And we are back after a switch of the podcasting platforms. Just uh, just thought I'd make it sort of exciting, a bit of an adrenaline rush, but it goes to show, always stick with Zoom, always stick with Zoom. Uh, So, you were saying... um, we're talking about your your hench body, and then you dropping off your your um, regime after getting all those likes. What? Why did you stop? Um, so it's because I moved back down to London. The pubs and stuff started opening up back in London. I was like, okay, there's a life back there, so I can now go back down. And um, the gym that I'm normally at wasn't open, and then just sort of more stuff started happening, and I just it wasn't as easy to do it. Um, yeah, I um, I, t- I started CrossFit for a bit. I did that for two weeks. For the What's that like? I've never done ten... it. It's really good, actually. It's sort of a mixture between weights and cardio. So it's a really good balance between the two. And it's also, there's, you train with people. So there's a, feels, there's a sense of community as well, yeah. which is always nice. Yeah, but, well, it um, does, that does help, doesn't it? I mean, because it's just... More than anything, it's just I just find it gets boring just working out on your own in the gym. It gets really boring. It gets really boring. Um, I had a, um, I think just, but I think just with the weights, uh, I just and just with working out in general, I'm just very seasonal with it. I'll just do a couple of months here, then drop off, then go a couple of months back on. I've got, I've got no loyalty to anything. I'm a very <laughs> flaky person. I'll, I'll be your best friend for a couple of months, and that's it. That's all I've got. <laughs> You must have done sports as well, though, right? During yeah, yeah, I do. I I can't go long without it. I, I'm I know what you mean though about dropping in and out of things. I tend to like get really excited about something for a few months, and I was like, yeah, this is it. I did it uh, with rock climbing. Got all the gear. I love the gear. Love buying the gear. No, and then gear is always good to start yourself off with. You've 
Yeah. And then like sort of three months later, it's looking at you sadly in the corner of a room, just reminding you of your own issues with, with commitment in general. Um, That's exactly right. Um, <laughs> so how, how did you find your, your lockdown experience? Because just before that happened, you were on tour with Milton Jones and that seemed to be going really well. And then obviously that's, you know, you, you can no longer continue that. How did you find that shift? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely, it, it, was, it was tough and disappointing. I mean, I think, I think it's worthwhile saying before I talk about this that I understand that mine isn't the greatest sob story of the whole of lockdown. I don't expect anyone to get a violin out for me, but it's all relative <laughs> to where it's all relative to where you were, isn't it? I mean, exactly. I, yeah. So I, I think the Milton Jones tour was 140 dates and I had 90 days left of the, of the Milton Jones tour. And um, what I, the plan was, see, I got to the stage in being a, a self-employed performer where I'd actually had like a, several year plan rather than just oh can I get gigs the next month or the next couple of months it was really okay I've really laid it out so I was doing the Milton Jones tour and then I'd organized to do my first national tour in some of the studio rooms of where his main performance was so after every gig a slide would come up going if you like the warm-up act he's doing this his show in this room and we organized it with Phil McIntyre who were the um promotions the the tour um promoters and so they were all filling in nicely it was streaming into one another and i was like yeah great i've really nailed this and then covid hit and uh both you know his tour and my tour got they're not cancelled but they're they're rescheduled so we originally hoped that he would then pick up again in october that's not going to happen then we thought february that's probably not going to happen so we're hoping now april so i'm saying i'm saying it's all put on hold rather than cancelled but it's still it's still hard when you when you had when you've had the momentum and you're feeling really good about yourself to now to now go back to with the milton tour i was doing you know it was, it was two thousand three thousand seaters five times a week wow and i'm just not match fit enough to do those rooms anymore i haven't been on stage yeah. in months yeah. so i i could I, I could maybe do some you know smaller I, I did one smaller gig last week which was like 70 people and it felt okay but to go on stage to 3,000 people I, I can't remember my jokes yeah and also all all my material now just seems irrelevant because the whole world is different now the yeah. audience are watching you through a different lens so I can't come on and just be like well so what's this about airplane food it's like, <laughs> people you haven't been you haven't been on an airplane in months what are you on about is it it doesn't make any sense so yeah, it's um, a lot of recalculations happen, having to happen. And just, um, I just want to talk about what you were you're talking about a plan. You've had sort of a plan of several years. Is that something that you've always done? Have you always planned ahead in terms of your career? And like, if so, how detailed are you when you're when you're putting that plan together? So um, I think I hadn't, I'd never had a plan as sort of details as I, I'd got to that stage. I think when, it, when you first start out doing comedy, you are literally sort of going, right, can I fill up my diary for this month or even this week? When you sign with, when I sign with every agent I've ever signed with, they've always sort of sat me down going, right, what's your end goal? What's, what do you, where do you see yourself in the future? What do you want to be? So I think it's good to sort of figure out what the overall plan is, where you're heading for, you know, do you want to, have your own sitcom? Do you want to host a chat show? Do you want to be touring? So you want to have those goals. It took me a little while. So 
my my path in comedy was, was a bit different because I was in a group for ten years. Noise next door. Who um, you may now have seen on Britain's Got Talent. Yeah. Um, so so uh, I um I sort of left them, and so the first sort of half a year leading up to Edinburgh, I was just panicking about. So I'd made friends, sort of hanging around with some sort of people who were very very um, far on in their careers. But I, after leaving the noise, I obviously had to take a massive big step backwards because improvised comedy in a group is very different to solo written comedy as a stand-up. Yeah. So I was sort of pedaling to try and catch up to all my peer group again whilst right. not really knowing what to do. So the first start of it was a massive big panic. And then so I really felt like I'd just sort of got to the level where I was. And then COVID hits and it all everything changes and it's all... It's all a shame. So when did you actually leave uh, The Noise Next Door to pursue solo stand-up? I left them. So th- I just did my third Edinburgh. So I left them three years ago. Okay. I left them in sort of January and then quickly wrote my first Edinburgh hour okay. in eight months, in seven months. Okay, well, and what made you decide to, to leave the world of improv to pursue stand-up? I think, um, I think I've had 10 years of it and I'd... Yeah. I, I was done. I was, you know, I'd enjoyed being in a group, but also when you're in a group, you're, you know, we, we lived together sort of on the road. We shared hotel rooms wherever we went. We were gigging intense. seven, eight times a week. It was, it was very intense. And obviously every idea you have has to be filtered through four other people who yeah. we're, we're all really strong characters. I was ready to write my own stuff and just be a bit selfish and just, you know do my own thing it just i think group, groups are a, it was an amazing experience and i love the boys very much but it was just time to move on was it a, was it a hard thing having to let them know that you wanted to leave and that whole everything that came with that yeah it was the, it's, it's the hardest thing i've ever had to do probably because we were friends throughout university first okay for three four years and then did 10 years together inside each other's pockets. And then, so you're essentially, you're, you're divorced. You're having a divorce. Yeah. But it's weird, but you've got four wives. <laughs> <laughs> if you imagine. Complicated. And, all, and, and, and you, you're essentially, you're, you're turning to your four best mates for, you know, a decade and a half. You've been in it together and saying, look, my, my, my wants for the future aren't the same as yours anymore. It's a, it's a horrible yeah. thing to do. Yeah. And um, it's, it's, it's not a, the hardest part is it's, it's not a personal thing against them. Of course. It's just people, people grow apart and people change. And um, it's horrible for them to hear. It's horrible for you to do. It, it took me two years of sort of realizing that this is what I wanted to do. Right. Until I finally, and a lot of times I, I'd be doing stuff without telling them because I was too worried about what they'd think. And oh, wow. Looking back, looking back, I wasn't as transparent and honest and open as I should have been. And they got really upset and angry with me, and rightfully so. I was I was a really difficult person to be with because I was I wasn't being honest with what I actually wanted. But it, it's 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 a really hard thing to do when you when you're in it. Yeah, I can imagine that. But looking at your clips from the Milton Jones tour, and I didn't know at the time when I was looking at stuff. I didn't know your background. I didn't know your improv background because it makes complete sense now because you're so quick off the mark with audience interaction. And uh, heckling and what just, I mean, it wasn't heckling as, I don't know, it wasn't like bad heckling or anything, but it was just, it was very, very yeah. impressive to watch. Oh, thank you. Well, that's very kind. Um, 
Yeah, I think what improv comedy does really, so there's sort of, the way I look at it, um, so and I, I sort of learned this in some module. I did a, I did a master's degree in stand-up comedy, don't you know? Did you? I, I did, yeah. What, and I got did, two, when did I got you do two, that? Two. <laughs> <laughs> really, really tried hard. Put um, that on your poster. I know. I, um, I did it. So I did a drama degree and then I did a stand-up in, uh, master's degree at okay. Kent University wow. under a guy called Dr. Oliver Double. Um, oh yeah, I've heard who it, also yeah. taught um, who also taught Laura Lex, okay, and um, Tin and Duyeb, Jimmy McGee, Pappy's Fun Club went to. Wow, okay, it's actually it's a bit of an Illuminate, and um, there's sort of two sides to um, stand up. You could say is the writing and jokes, and there's the performance. So it's all attitude and content, and what. What lots of stand-ups actually not the normal way I'd say stand-ups start out is they're better at writing than they are at performing quite often because you know they sort of know what they think is funny but they've not used to being on stage and performing it and living in the moment. Whereas for me, I came from an improv background, which meant that I was really good at the performing side and just being natural on stage, but I couldn't write a joke. All I was exactly the, the same. All the, right, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd also come from an improv background and then started doing a stand-up as well, so I can I can fully right. relate to that. So, like, my the first joke I ever... My opening joke when I started out was the whole thing about me being from a military background, my dad being an army officer. But, you know, doubts were raised about me joining the army when he was watching me perform Cats the Musical on the stairs. <laughs> and the thing about that is... It, that's not actually a joke, is it? It's all that is, is me going, I was a camp kid and my dad was an army officer. Yeah, There's very no visual. joke there. Yeah, it's, it's all performance. It's all, I hope you find me being camp funny. I remember then I get away with that because I perform it. But then I remember doing that at the comedy store for my first five minutes. And the comedy store is somewhere where you need jokes. Yeah. Like you need to actually have the material to back it up. And I did it and I got hit with this wall of silence to people going, yeah, okay. And I thought, oh, I died on my ass. Devastating. So it was awful. And then I had to then do five minutes of prancing around on the stage, pretending to be a cat to absolute silence. Absolute silence. Did you committed to it? I, I committed to it. And it was awful. And then I got off stage, walked back into that dressing room. And I remember like one of the older comedians came up to me and put a hand on me and went, don't worry, mate. They were probably just more dog people. I was like, <laughs> oh brutal <laughs> oh i mean very funny but absolutely brutal and it's then when i realized no you you need to have the material to to make the the progression right. so then i learned to write jokes but that's why yeah now when i'm doing doing the milton tour and doing the warm-up i think that's why he's sort of booked me is because i, I i'm very comfortable with talking with with people and how have you find that transition from touring, like you said, where you're in each other's pockets to then ha having now more of a, a solitary experience? I mean, you tell me maybe it's different because you're, you're, when you were supporting Milton, you were on the road with him. But did you enjoy that more of um, doing things solo? Um, or, or being in the company of yourself? <laughs> yeah. The, um, I mean, I, I always used to value my solace when I was in the group and I enjoyed that, but I'll, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I, I found it really hard in some, in some ways it was very freeing because, you know, if I wanted to stay around after a gig, I could, if I wanted to go back, I could, 
you can, you know, you're the master of your own, you can make your own choices. But I also, um, I, I'd never experienced panic attacks before. Uh, and then I actually started experiencing them after leaving the noise when I was on my own, because you, um, you suddenly do realize what being alone really means. And you, what you do have in a group is a bunch of people to share the joy with and to share the, you know, the, the bad times with. Uh, whereas when you're a stand-up, if you die, you do die on your own. And also, if you have a great gig, you know, you're there in the, in the room, but then as soon as you leave and turn a corner, you're then on your own and you're sat in a hotel room with no one interested or bothered. And it's like that, the, the crash of um, going from that extreme high being on stage, then going back to complete, just no one, no one's interested, no one cares. That, that really started to affect me. And um, you also, you have self doubt. Whereas in a group you have that, come on guys, we're all in this together. We're going to do it. Whereas you, you're only responsible for yourself. So I, I actually found it, really tough and i had um i had several moments on you know public transport where um i'd have to get off and just walk around and calm myself down because i was really like why i'm going to the middle of nowhere on my own and who the hell knows who i am and i also um full disclosure i think um in the group you could get a bit drunk or something and you'd um because there's four other people on stage you can sort of if you're having a bad gig, you can hide behind four other people's performances. Whereas when I went solo, I also had this whole level of freedom, which meant I did more in the early stages. I did more drink and drugs than I'd ever done before, but it also meant I was rocking up to gigs and just being out of my brain or not feeling good. And then having these bad gigs and then hating myself for putting myself in this situation. So I found myself in this sort of, uh, no, eventually I sort of get no take responsibility and sober up and sort yourself out. But because I was I was I was I had a year certainly the first year, but probably the, the last two really where I didn't know who I was because I hadn't found my voice on stage. So I was just I was quite a sort of worried, slightly lost person. So yeah, I, I found it very very difficult. Yeah, I can imagine that because being very honest, I, I, I hope this is what you want. <laughs> no, this is per- this is perfect, perfect. You're 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 delivering the gold. You're delivering the gold. But I I can imagine that because it's always a challenge anyway when you're going through that period of trying to figure that stuff out on stage and you know find your voice. But particularly so, it adds another dimension when you've decided to turn your back on this successful group and you guys were like super successful, and you had the safety yeah. net of performing and like you everything you've described that's obviously going to play in your mind as well. Have I made the right decision? Am I doing the right thing? Or what the fuck have I done? Absolutely. And it was only when I started doing gigs on my own that I realized how little I actually knew about solo stand-up. And then you also get those times when, because I'd already made friends in the industry, I tried my best to do as many open mic gigs as I possibly could to just really you know, do the hard yards. Because you can't cheat this game. You've You've got to do the pub gigs you've got to travel to the weird places but i did get some gigs which was just i wasn't ready for you and you end up being in front of 300 people and you've only really got 10 minutes but you're doing 20 and you're like or i found 
you end up, because of my improv background, people went, oh, he can MC a lot. And that was a lot of pressure because then you feel pressure on not just yourself, but you're representing the night and you're trying to set it up for other people. But, you know, improvising in a group, again, is different to improvising as an MC. And so I'd have these times as well when I was rocking up, not really that prepared, maybe having had a couple of beers. And then the MC would go a bit, my MC role, I'd suddenly feel this pressure and I'd, I'd, I'd hate some of the situations that I just put myself in. But I was doing it because I was, yeah, I was nervous. I was unsure. I was worried and I wasn't handling it the right way. And I got out of that eventually. But yeah, no, it was, there were some tough times. So how did you get past that? You said you stopped drinking. You said you, you know, stopped drinking or you didn't drink as much. You stopped doing as many drugs and you, you managed to get past that. But what actually did you do? What, what strategies did you put in place to sort of level, your, level yourself out and get yourself in a calmer state? So um, there's a few things that I, I, I realized that I, w- I should do that would be healthy or I was doing that wasn't healthy. So I used to smoke a lot of weed and I used to do it in the writing. Pro- so in improv and stuff, I'd, I'd, I'd smoke weed. If I thought of some ideas for games and stuff, or if I was, if I'd, uh, was doing like a, a routine, I get the premise of the routine, do some bullet points, smoke a joint, and then I'd walk around my, my house with some headphones on and try and just sort of spitball lines and try and think of toppers while getting high. Because my head was like, oh yeah, smoking weed will put your brain into a different way of thinking and then you're thinking the way you never thought. I've replaced that now with instead of smoking weed, I go for a run. And that's yeah. way more beneficial because doing sport, it does the same. It puts your brain in a different way of thinking because yeah. your, your body's moving and stuff and same thing. But it doesn't ruin your brain and it doesn't give you a horrendous sort of fuzzy brain in the morning and it feels beneficial. You feel like you're improving yourself. And, and health is... Health is just such a valuable thing to have. And then um, the other thing that I realized is that I didn't have any hobbies. My hobby was comedy or going out and getting drunk. And hobbies are really important because your hobby should never be your job, firstly. Your job is your job. A hobby is something that you do which you only have pleasure from and you do it for fun. And that's the only reason. It's yours and that... In my head, it's self-contained there. Going out is a very bad hobby because you just end up, you end up hungover or hungover or drunk all the time. So things like I've now got a fantasy card game collection. Hey, well, like Top Trumps. It's not like Top Trumps. No, no, it's a, <laughs> it's a, how dare you? It, it's a, it's a bit like Top Trumps, but it's a, it's called Magic the Gathering. Okay. And I, I love it. And it's a, it's, a, it's a fancy card game collection that I, I collect. I enjoy sorting it all out and organizing it. Okay. You can arrange your own decks and stuff. And I, and I play it with people on nights. And we'll rather than go out and get drunk four nights a week, maybe a couple of nights a week, I'll go and play board games or I'll play this game with my friends. And, or, you know, I'll go in, I'm playing tennis now. I'm, uh, I've started playing cricket. I've joined a touch rugby. I'm, I'm, I'm joining, sorry, a touch rugby squad. So just replacing, uh, replacing a lot of your nights and your spare time with doing these fun activities that you can focus on rather than just living in a world where you're either getting on the sesh or worried about work. You need, you need the release of just a, this is just for me. This is just fun. Yeah. I, I can completely relate to that. I mean, I, like I said, I've always done exercise, et cetera, but 
in terms of hobbies specifically ones that related to creativity i always sort of got stuck in this mindset of like there has to be an end goal if there's not an end goal for it kind of like what's the point and that defeats the whole purpose of having a hobby it's supposed to be just a playtime and just recreational that's the the point is there is no point the point is that is just fun and it's just a release and um Team sports are obviously, uh, I, I found that's been very fun. Like, because um, the one thing, I, one thing I would do is sports is that I, I still, it would still be me working out on my own or running on my own. Whereas actually having sort of other people that you do the hobby with is very beneficial. Like having a friendship group that isn't comedians is good. Yeah. Because when it's all comedians, you just talk shop all the time and you're all, it, it's you're too immersed in it. Whereas having a bunch of people who couldn't, the shit about comedy and they're just there to have this other thing it just means that your life just gets a bit more a bit fuller yeah it's just it's just really important perfect hello sorry to interrupt in the middle of this insightful conversation which i'm enjoying i'm sure just as much as you are but i need to give you guys a little reminder Uh, if you like this conversation this episode if you like balancing acts in general then please do subscribe to us rate and review us because it makes the world of difference and the more reviews we get the more rates we get the more people can discover the podcast and we can make it go viral whatever that means okay back to the chat so, I mean, it sounds like you've had so many different, so many positive, you know, shifts and breakthroughs. Was there anything in particular that helped you get to this point? Like, did you read a book or did you speak to someone? You're like, oh shit, yeah, I, I need to do X, Y, and Z to to help me get to a a healthy place. I say with speech marks, inverted commas. Sorry. Uh, um, I think um, I think I, I I went through a um, a breakup that. Um... I, I, I subsequently realized was my fault predominantly, which um, I think then when you sort of some home truths get told to you and you realize you, you do take a step back. And then that happened just before uh, COVID hit. And then, and then actually the, this whole lockdown thing, I, I, that was very sobering as well, just to sort of, that makes you reprioritize what your life goals are. When everything gets taken away from you, you sort of go, well, hang on. Why am I doing this? What, is it fame I'm after? Or is it really, you sort of, they gets to a stage in your career when you want to not have to accept every gig that comes your way. That's a, that's a goal. When you start out, you're like, no, no, I just want to fill my diary and do this. But if you can get to a stage where you're like, do you know what? I don't want to travel to Northampton. I want to go and see my friends and go 10 bowling. That's, that's a great stage to get to. That's when you're really starting to get on, the, on your career when you are. I remember when I, when I was in my first year of going solo, my, so my dad, who is the, um, I don't know if you know, is the, is the constable of the Tower of London. I did. I, and that's something uh, we will definitely get onto. So um, and I, I was there for um, two and a half years. I, I've now moved out, which is a, we'll get around to in a minute. But um, when he was having his inductions to console the tower, so there would be a star and all this, and he was getting inducted in, it was his event. And I got offered a gig, like a, a nothing gig. It was a hundred pounds in Nottingham or something, but there might have been someone there who might have offered me an opportunity in the future. And it was on the same night, day and night, as my dad's um, initia- initiation into his role. And I was going I, I to take the gig. And a friend of mine just stopped me and went, Tom, 
go to your dad's in, uh, installation. That is a once in a lifetime event. You want to be at that. You want to be there for your dad. You don't want to do the gig. Your career is not, the reason you do this career is you get this to go and see it. And it was like, yeah, you're totally right. Why am I sacrificing these real life events in order just to have a hundred quid gig in Nottingham? It's mental. But it's easy to get caught up in that when you are really wanting, you're trying to make your career work. But just, you've got, you've got to remember why you're doing it. And um, those life experiences are, are more important. Was that kind of your realization when you said, you know, you're going through lockdown and you're trying and you're questioning why you're doing it? Is it because of the fame? Was your kind of understanding of it as like, I'm doing this so that it gives me a sense of freedom in my life to sort of choose how I, what kind of lifestyle I want? Or was there something think, sort of deeper than that as well? No, I think, I think the pride, I think it came with the, the reason I'm doing it is because I love doing it. I love it. And I'm very fortunate enough to have got to a stage where it is a, I, I, I will be able to make a career out of it. I, I, I actually can have a structure of it, but it's, um, it was the realization of what priorities in life should be. And you're, it all means nothing unless you've got, you know, so for me, uh, um, a family and people you love and friends you care about you to come back home and celebrate and have to with. I would sacrifice being famous or getting that amazing gig, but being then completely on my own with no one to support to celebrate with for having less success, but having someone who loves me to be there with me. I, I, I would do that. Yeah, I can fully relate to that. I can fully relate to that. And um, I think that is one of the positive things about this period of time is that it's given given us a moment to reflect we've got so much time to really like pause and think about how we are living a life and um and you're questioning or oh, why am i doing this what, what am i doing this for and i think so many people have come out of this with with that in mind whether people do make those changes you know uh, in the long run is, a, is another matter you so you mentioned about your dad being you know his your dad was a former chief of defense i believe staff of the british armed forces and is now constable of the tower of london yes, yes. How was it growing up, having a military dad or a dad with a military background, and then with you having these performing aspirations, was, was that something that he, he was supportive of, or was that a challenge growing up in that, in that sort of environment? The, the stereotype people would imagine is this really hard, strict, straight-laced army officer I said, no, sir, mine's going to be wearing a tutu and dancing around and doing this. And then me going, but dad, it's my passion. Uh, the truth is, is that actually he was, um, he was, he was very, very supportive. And um, I think he always said that one of the, the best things he's found about being successful is that he's managed to create a safety net in order to allow kids to do what they want to do, which is a lovely way of looking at it. I think the issue comes is because parents essentially, I think their main concern about their kids is that their kids are going to be safe and secure and not fall on hard times. And there's something about being a self-employed clown that obviously strikes terror into my dad as far as a man who has lived into a hierarchy of you get paid this amount if you're a major, then you get to this rank and you get this and you get this rank and you get this. So when I was going solo it was like so how much are you gonna get a month and i was like well i don't know 
because it could be loads one month and not next month. So, well, I, I think you should say to your agent that you want to have seven corporates a month at £2,000. And he's like, Dad, I can't just say that. That's not, that's, that's not how it works. He's like, well, why not? Is she an agent? What do then? He's like, well, so trying to sort of get him to understand how the thing works. But as soon as I started being able to live you know, by my own means to finance it, and he saw the structure, and again, that goes into having a step plan rather than just a m- monthly plan. Now, so my dad, in his, in his opening speech at the House of Lords, he mentioned me being a comedian to the, ha- to the other houses, members of the House of Lords. And he name drops, he's so happy amongst his sort of aristocracy peers to be able to say his son's a comedian. Because all their sons work in the city or do all these rat race jobs. He's like, he always says he'll wait at a dinner party. And he's, my mum's business carded the queen before with my bloody, with my comedy act. That would be quite the corporate gig. Quote, it looks interesting. And now I, I get beef eaters showing up to my gigs. I get earls, barons, all sorts of weird people. And I talk with my parents. And they're now speaking to my dad. So we, we've, we realized where the link between being an army officer and being a comedian lies. And what it is, is me and my dad both love public speaking. And being an army officer is essentially standing up in front of a bunch of people and speaking to them and trying to manipulate them and persuade them into feeling a certain way. And that's the same as being a comedian. The difference is he's leading them into battle and I'm trying to make them laugh but it's essentially, it's public speaking. So now I've spent many nights, me and my dad will come back and we'll sit on the balcony of the Tower of London and have a whiskey each. And he'll be like, oh, I did a gig today to a bunch of people and I absolutely murdered, I killed it. And he'll talk about his, his speeches, his gigs, and I'll talk about mine and we'll exchange I saw this bit which made them understand. I saw the lights clicking. I was like, oh, I did this joke where this is. And we'll, we'll just discuss the, sort of the dynamics of public speaking together. And it's actually, there's a massive crossover and a lot more similar than we ever thought we were. It's That's lovely. It's a cool. lovely thing to reconnect. Yeah, it's almost like it's sort of full circle, isn't it? That's really nice. And it's what, nice. so what, I'm sure you have been asked this before, but I'm going to ask anyway, what was it like living in the, uh, the Tower of London? It was an experience that I will never forget. And it was surreal. And well, he's still living there. So he's still got two more years there. And I only live like 10 minutes down the road. So I can, I'm still going to have loads of dinner parties and stuff and when COVID breezes over. But it, it, it was amazing. And of course, because when I left the noise next door to go solo, I wanted to move to London but I was going to take a financial hit. So the fact that my dad was living in the castle in the middle was like, oh, well, that's this most, that's the luckiest situation I could have possibly asked for. Yeah. But then, so the, the, it's a historical royal palace. And this is sort of, I know this is a bit of a line, but I was living there for three years, but because it was sort of, I wasn't paying rent and it was all very convenient and easy. I wasn't a bit of arrested development. And, the, my, my girlfriend at the time, um, she really didn't like it because it wasn't my own place. It wasn't somewhere where we were always being watched. There were so many rules. You had to cross a moat and two battle gates to get in and out of it. Get out. And so, 
Yeah, no, it's, it's insane. So it becomes a bit of a prison. And you realize you're actually, it's, it's not real. And it's all, I'm now, now that I've moved out and I've got my own place where I can, I can sit in my boxer shorts on my couch and I can walk out of a door and no one tells me when I can and can't come in. I'm, I'm actually a lot happier near here, even though I am now paying rent and, you know, I'm sharing with another bloke and we live on top of each other. I'm actually a lot happier because it's, it's mine. It's my own and I'm living it. And that's, that's come across after three years of sort of lying there and you, you need to have your own space. Otherwise, I, I can completely see how Prince Harry left. I can completely see why he just got... I know that I'm comparing myself to Prince Harry and that's a bit grand. I, I understand that. But I, I, have a, I have a taste of what it's like to live in that sort of, oh, it looks amazing from the outside, but on the inside, actually, you're, you're not happy. Yeah. So what, what does your, that peer group who sort of, the people that you were associated growing up with in terms of your age, who I, you correct me if I'm wrong, I, may, I imagine are doing sort of, as you describe more of those rat racy type jobs, what's, how do they sort of perceive you in, in terms of the world? I guess, I guess it's, it's, they're used to it because you're obviously doing improv for years, but how does that? Yeah, no, they were. They, yeah, they were. They're my lovely bunch of mates who, um, you know, we went to boarding school from six years old together. Uh, I lived in boarding houses from six to 18. And then um, they all work for Deloitte and have six figure salaries. But they, um, they, they also, they, they work, um, you know, they don't, they don't love their work and they all, you know, they're, they're all sort of, it's, it's, a, it's a classic case of the grass is always greener. Like, they envy me because I, they, they see my job as this amazing thing that I love doing. And I, and I do. And I get to travel and meet new people and it's all fun and it's all laughs and being on stage. But I envy them because they have all got amazing houses and they, they earn loads of money. Um, but, you know, they've had their own problems. You know, they, they, they've been caught up in the rat race and their girlfriends have said they haven't seen them and that they're too sort of dead behind the eyes thinking about how what the figures are and stuff. So it's all, I, I know a lot of them who have taken pay cuts to have less responsibility to now try and spend more time with their wives and try and make families and stuff. And so the older you get when sort of you realize, you realize what the priority are, priorities are in life. I think I've enjoyed, I, I, I certainly enjoy being the friend of theirs who is you know they organize weekends where they'll come and see me gig and they'll all come to you know i've had times where i've been gigging in uh brighton so they've all come down and rented a hotel and come to my gig and then we've all gigged we've all gone out in brighton and that's a really lovely thing to be sort of the member of a friendship group where people have organized the social aspect and they're excited to come and see me that's that's lovely and they also, you know, they'll come up to the Edinburgh Fringe and our friends of theirs that they've seen on Netflix that they then get to meet. One of the early Edinburghs, one of my, sort of, I did 10 Edinburghs with The Noise Next Door. I think maybe my third or fourth Edinburgh with The Noise Next Door. Muck Lovin. Do you remember Muck Lovin from Superbad? Of course. So he was in Edinburgh with a bunch of his mates who were doing a full run and I became best friends with Muck Lovin Love from Edinburgh. It was insane. And, and it was absolutely insane. And my 
my boarding school mates, like, mate, oh, mate, right, we're coming up for a weekend. I'm not going to believe this. I'm best friends with McLovin. And they were like, what? Like, bullshit, mate, we don't believe you. Then they came up for the weekend, and I took them to a house party that McLovin was organizing. I rock up with them, and McLovin walks through the door, and he's like, Tom, how you doing? Oh, your Tom's mates come in. And they're all like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and they just thought I was the coolest person in the world. Uh, was my mate. That's the so, uh, so much fun. Those, and, those, are, those are the moments you live for. Those are the moments. That's what you got into the game for, to meet McLovin. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, one of, the, one, of the, one of the most amazing things about comedy as opposed to music or other art forms is how quickly you brush shoulders with the top of the tree. So with music, you, how long is it going to be before you are going to be able to perform alongside uh, Kings of Leon or someone? That's, you're never doing that. You're doing a million more things. With comedy, you could have your first gig in a pub alongside Russell Howard or Milton Jones. It, the camaraderie of comedy means that, and, and the nature of its setup means that the newest acts will be on a bill with the most established acts right from the off, and that will continue to happen. And yeah, because of the nature of comedians, you're, you're, you'll talk to them. It's amazing. Yeah. It's a purely, it's a meritocratic system in that respect. Like if you're funny, then you'll get opportunities. Mm-hmm. I, and, I, I, um, absolutely. I, uh, I remember my first full year of doing stand-up because I had sporadic moments where I stopped and started. But in the first full year I did it, I, um, I was asked to do a gig and I wasn't told who would be on the lineup. They, they called me just to like check my character because I'm doing character comedy and my character's name. And, and then they sent me the poster. go, oh, here's the poster. Just want to check that you're okay with it. And there was my name. And then above my name was Stuart Lee. And I was opening you know, it just like I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I could not. It was like, I, it was mind blowing to me. Wow. Yeah. And how amazing that they asked you, are you okay with this poster? It's like, are you kidding me? That's the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. It was, it was, yeah, it was so casual, the whole thing. But yeah, it's exactly what, you, what you're saying. It, it doesn't happen in other art forms. It just doesn't happen. Um, and um, it's an amazingly, um, humble and invaluable experience to be able to, because also the, the best, the, the best acts who have got to the big leagues, they always do talk to the people in the dressing room. Cause you are, I, I think more than, I, I think with standups more often than not, I think the best dressing rooms and the best people and the people who last longest in the game, they don't look at it as competing amongst the acts. They look at, as a dressing room as we are against that audience and we are going to do this night. Of course, you'll probably sort of go, right, how did I do, blah, 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 blah. But in general, I think dressing rooms, the best dressing rooms I've been in, the most I've experienced are ones that um, it's like, we are going to put on a great night. Yeah, I think that's such a good way of putting it. And I think you can be, you become more at peace with yourself if you are, you're, you're thinking more about just you, your act and how you can be better and not sort of looking over your shoulder and be like, oh, well, such and such is doing that or, you know, X, Y, and Z. Because yeah. uh, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. That's not what it's about. Um, this took me a long while to realise, but and, and this is such a line from some YouTube video that I've watched sometime. But you, you really are only competing with yourself. 
just compare yourself to who you were before. That, and that's all that matters. Because if, if you try and compare yourself to other people, you'll go mad. Because there'll always be someone doing better. And there'll always be someone getting that job. It's, it's, it's only about what's your goal and am I going towards it and am I furthering myself? And just, 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 it's just you and yourself. That's a great bit of advice. And um, one other thing I wanted to ask you, Tom, is you have obviously decided during this time, obviously because there's a, there's a lack of opportunities to perform live, to start doing more online content and you set up a YouTube channel. How are you finding that experience? Uh, I'm finding it rewarding, but also very testing. Um, I did. So I, I taught myself how to edit in lockdown. I bought Final Cut Pro and I bought Logic Pro. And because to, to be honest, um, comedy and entertainment in general and content, it was going online anyway, more and more stuff's going online. So I feel like it's sort of a no brainer to try and start like you're doing like a podcast or start doing online content. I think lockdown really escalated that. And I think if we're going to have another lockdown, I think we're thinking in general, people are wanting more content. So it's a very different um, beast live and online. And I'm still trying to figure it out, but it's giving me something to focus on, which is good at a time when you're not gigging, trying to sort of better and more and, and further my understanding of how to do online content and what I'm trying to do with it. That's, that's been really helpful just to sort of focus on. And um yeah, now I'm starting to get real, real momentum with it. You know, you start out, you're doing videos and you're maybe getting a couple of hundred views. And now, you know, then you're getting a couple of thousand views and then you'll have the odd video that gets tens of thousands of views. And it's, um, it's a build though. It's a build. It's, it's not an overnight thing. It's going to gradually go up, but, um, you know, I'm really enjoying it. Great. I feel like I could talk to you for, for hours, but I'm aware, aware of your time. So I'm going to ask you a couple more questions. One question is, have you any books that you've read over the years that have had a, had a big impact on you? Um, ooh, interesting. As far as, um, as far as comedy, I'm assuming, or do you mean just in general? In, in general, can be anything. Well, of course, in my, when I was studying for my 2-2 uh, stand-up comedy degree, <laughs> I... I <laughs> I had to read a great deal of books. Dr. Oliver Double, who is the guy who's my tutor, he, he's, he's written a lot of books on being a stand-up comedian, a lot of the technicalities of, of stand-up. I, I, I would definitely recommend them. Okay. Can I tell you my, rather than tell you specific books that I've read, can I tell you my biggest game changer when it, come to, when it came to books? Of course. Is I, um, I started listening to audio books. Okay. And that tripled my intake of books. Really? Because I travel all the time. I walk, walk everywhere. I drive a lot. And I found reading, I'm dyslexic, so I found just reading very hard. Yeah. Um, whereas listening to audiobooks, it just means it's all going in there. And you can do it in sitting on a train or when you're driving or when you're going for a, for a run or doing sport. Yeah. So if anyone struggles with reading, I would... I would 100% say go audiobooks. That's good advice. That's good advice. And are you, are you a fan of podcasts in general? I do like podcasts. Um, I've listened to a fair few. Um, I've really listened to Dave Longley's one, Arguing for the Sake of Arguing. I love that yeah. one. Okay. If you don't, if you don't know, know Dave Longley, it's very know. rude. Okay. It's very right. rude, but very fun. 
um, um, Slosson Humphreys, Daniel Slosson and Kai Humphreys, very good friends of mine. They've got, um, they're called Slosson Humphreys on the road. That's very funny. Um, Clear and Obvious is an NFL podcast for my two friends, Ryan Cullen and Gareth War. If you're into NFL, I'm not, but if you are, go and have a look. And then obviously I listen to things like um, the Bill Burr podcast and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, great. Okay, and uh, final question uh, to wrap things up. What does the idea of balance mean to you or not? Um, I think think the the most important thing that I've learned about balance, and I think this is with, um, in regards to work and stand-up especially, is just um, you going back, Back to the thing about having hobbies and having stuff and having families and stuff that stuff that there is no point to or end goal just so that you can if you spend your whole life just in the zone you'll burn yourself out and you'll miss what the other side is is when it's just just living life and enjoying yourself and you work hard for this in order so you can enjoy this and i think um i think you have to have the balance of the balance as well. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say you can afford to have it 50, 50 when you're starting out. I think maybe sort of a 70, 30 split. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good ratio. Work really hard. Work really hard. Yeah. You should, you need to work, work hard. Uh, get, get to the point where you've got burnout. You start to have the panic attacks and that's when you draw back to 50, 50. That's exactly it. Yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> uh, all right, Tom. Look, it's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Where can people find your you know the the stuff you're doing online at the moment, the funny videos you're making, etc. Yes. Yeah, so Twitter and Instagram, mainly Instagram, because uh, Twitter I find everyone argues and I'm dyslexic, so I hate it. But um, Instagram, love pictures, big on videos, uh, is at Honourable Tom, uh, Honourable. And then um, YouTube is Honourable Tom as well. And I've just started a Patreon as well. If, um, but if you watch all that stuff and feel like you really want to support me, then my Patreon is Honourable Tom as well. So just Honourable Tom. Great. All right. Fantastic. All right, Tom, it's been great speaking to you. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. That was really great. Good speaking to you too, mate. Perfect. And there we have it, Tom Horton in the metaphorical building via Zoom. Another great conversation. So many nuggets of gold to take away from that. I really enjoyed chatting with Tom. And I am now off to a meditation retreat. I usually try and go on at least one a year, but I didn't manage to go on one last year. And then obviously COVID has kind of uh, fucked up those plans for this year. But I was on a waiting list for one happening this weekend and somebody cancelled. So I am uh, going. So when you next hear me in the next episode, if I sound very serene and calm and measured, basically the complete opposite to my usual self, then uh, you'll know why. Namaste very much. Okay, guys, thanks as always for listening. Be sure to tune in to the next episode. See you later. Balancing Acts is made in association with the Comedy Crowd who support independent comedy creators. They showcase the best new videos on ComedyCrowdTV.com and across media platforms. They support independent comedy creators and showcase the best new videos, including adult animation, sketch shows, web series, viral hits, and lots more. So if you're a creator, then do check them out. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 